Welcome to the Criteria Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for Preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss our Christmas wish list for future Criterion releases, as well as our thoughts on the new Filmstruck streaming service from Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection. Tonight's episode is a departure from our usual format of discussing one film, thereby showing the extent of both Matt and my neuroses as cinephiles. Each of us has chosen two films that we would like to see included as part of the continuing series of important classic and contemporary films. For our dear Santa wishes, both Matt and I have selected one classic and one contemporary film piece that we would like to see get its own spine number. Discussing our rationales for choosing our particular titles as well as suggesting some supplements and cover art, Matt and I will reveal to all of our listeners, all ten of them, just how far we are willing to go down the rabbit hole. We also will be discussing our initial impressions of Filmstruck, a new streaming service by film lovers for film lovers. Join Matt and me as we continue to lead the lives of man-children instead of attending to the more pressing matters that should consume the world of adults. So, Matt, a little fun uh, introduction there regarding our discussion tonight. Uh, This is just a silly little thing, of course, and uh, it's a a great fun thing to do, but obviously it's, you know, not that we expect anybody's really listening to what you and I suggest for the Criterion Collection uh, to put in there, Mm -hmm. but I thought it would be kind of a fun little way just for us to change it up and maybe shed some light on a a few titles that people might not normally know or think about. and as just a note, I mean, I know uh, neither of us has shared with each other what films we chose for our picks, so it's going to be a surprise for ourselves tonight uh, as we list them. Hopefully, we didn't both choose the same films. Uh, yeah, we'll but see. If we do, I guess we'll just see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, do you have anything you want to say just in terms of how you came up with your rationale or anything like that in terms of just some principles you had for picking the titles you did? Sure. I'll mention that this was... A lot more difficult than I expected, to be honest. I, it's hard to narrow it down to a couple films. Uh, first of all, I'll say that I struggled with just the definition of contemporary versus classic, just from the get go. Yeah, I had the same thought. Yeah, so and I think we kind of discussed that briefly too before doing this episode. You know, what constitutes classic? What constitutes contemporary? Is there a certain amount of time that has to have elapsed to consider a film classic? Uh, so. I, you know, my classic pick, some may say it's arguably contemporary, but I would argue that it's classic. So I think there's some flexibility there in terms of um, in terms of categorizing these films. But um, yeah, in terms of what I picked, you know, I, I tried to think, okay, what's a film that I feel is important that would uh, fit into the Criterion Collection, uh, but also a film that maybe had a lackluster blu-ray release or maybe a film that hasn't been released on blu-ray uh something that would benefit from the criterion treatment and also something that would lend itself well to good extras and supplemental or supplementary material so all those things certainly uh uh, factored into the the films i chose uh any thoughts on your end in terms of how you picked your films 
Uh, very similar. Uh, I, I also chose films that I thought would benefit from a new release. Uh, there's obviously films like Lawrence of Arabia that are classic, totally would belong in the Criterion Collection by all definitions, but have already received just incredible releases, so I don't see why you'd highlight those. So part of me was thinking, well, maybe I can... Uh, not necessarily that I think my films would be surprises or unknowns to at least people who are into film, but nonetheless that it maybe gives people another way of thinking about them. Uh, and again, the idea of maybe some uh, interesting supplements that you could have with them. And then, yeah, something that just has uh, importance. That was the key word that I had. What is an important film uh, in terms of picking out, especially a contemporary film, that would be important? Because it's a little harder to know what's important in the contemporary scene. Uh, we haven't had the, the advantage of time to see how it maybe plays out. So I, th- I think it's um, it could be interesting to see just, you know, what does the films of today, you know, how 20 years, 50, 70 years from now, uh, what actually makes an impact and what doesn't. Uh, so that's kind of what I how I approached it as well. So with that, uh, Matt, why don't you uh, start us off here with your pick for your classic film? All right. Uh, yeah, one other caveat. I, these picks are films that are important to me personally as well. So uh, there is some favoritism in the picks that, that I made. But again, I also tried to stick with the, um, the uh, criteria that I had listed before, too. So try not to be entirely selfish, but uh, these are films that have made an impact on me as well, and of course that... The whole enterprise is selfish, so <laughs> we're p- making a Christmas wish here to, to a uh, company that doesn't even know we probably exist, so... Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Let's have fun with it, okay. right? Okay. Alright, well, let's get to the film. So, uh, my pick for classic film uh, is the 1984 film by Roland Joffe, The Killing Fields. Uh, so, this is a film that some could say might be considered contemporary but 1984 you know it's been over 30 years i felt it qualified as a classic film uh this is a film that made a great impact on me the first time i saw it of course uh roland joffe uh is i think kind of an underappreciated director he's someone that's uh been working for quite a long time and and is still working and he's made some uh, pretty outstanding films, I think. Uh, another film of his I, I like a lot is The Mission, of course, starring Robert De Niro. And uh, Back to the Killing Fields, uh, this is a, a very powerful film uh, that depicts the friendship between uh, two newspaper reporters. So Sidney Shenberg of the New York Times and his uh, Cambodian partner, Dith Pran. And those parts were played by Sam Watterson and uh, Hang Noor respectively and uh the latter i believe won best supporting actor uh he did uh in the academy awards for this film and tragically uh died shortly after that so just a, a tragic loss to the uh to the acting world certainly um uh, and and to to worlds beyond that but uh this is a film that that depicts uh the khmer rouge conflict in cambodia uh, around 1975 uh, so, not exactly a uh, a light film in terms of of its subject matter. Uh, of course, it, it takes a very hard look at at the genocide uh, committed by the Khmer Rouge. But the film is really ultimately about friendship between Sydney and Pran, and their level of dedication to each other, and to the story, and to just uh, the the importance of the story that they were telling. Uh, 
but the the film also looks at uh, motivations behind journalism, which I felt was a very interesting aspect to this film that I, I respect um, quite a bit. It doesn't have a kind of romanticized view of journalism. It it looks at it as something that you know is about ego as well. the The ego of a reporter and what what uh, does that. Uh, how does that factor into the story that's being told? Granted, there's a very important uh, uh, piece of history that's being witnessed uh, by by this or by these reporters, but the film really uh, doesn't shy away from uh, how a, a reporter's ambition can get in the way of the story, uh, and uh, that's really at the heart of the conflict of the film as well, beyond just the, uh, the historical context. Uh, again, it really is about the relationship between those two characters and uh, and their respective motivations. So, in summary, for those who haven't seen the film, I try not to spoil too much. But uh, essentially, the Khmer Rouge comes in. Uh, Sydney and Pran are caught behind enemy lines, so to speak. Uh, Pran has the ability to leave Cambodia, but decides to stay with Sydney and uh, and tell the story. And Sydney's um, fellow journalists are questioning his motivation for keeping Pran on staff and and not getting him out of uh, the country. So again, it's about those motivations, about that friendship, and uh, about the Pulitzer Prize that Sydney eventually won for uh, telling the stories he told from Cambodia. Very uh, uh, naturalistic style of this film, documentary style, uh, serves the film very well. And, and I think it's an important film that uh, tells the story of uh, an important chapter uh, in, in Southeast Asian history. It's an interesting pick. I wouldn't have expected it. Uh, I do think after you've hit kind of the 30-year mark, it's probably no longer what I would consider contemporary. It is a little arbitrary. What's classic? What's contemporary? But I, I think this has had enough time that it would move out of the certainly the contemporary and therefore, I guess, into classic status. I, um, I, I've i seen the film a couple times. I, uh, I remember when I first saw it, I was very struck by it. And I would say it kind of was a very human film. Uh, this was at the when it was made in '84. Uh, you had the w- new wave of sort of post-Vietnam films coming out. Uh, this was a couple years before Platoon. And yeah. It was after The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, and there's other films that were coming out at that time dealing with Vietnam. And it has a different voice on that particular period of history. It's obviously yes in Cambodia, Khmer Rouge, but it's also dealing with U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. So Vietnam is in there. And uh, yeah. it's a very I, I I watched it again maybe a year ago. Uh, I, I picked up the Blu-ray from Warner Home Video, which has a nice transfer, but is spare on any sort of extras. And I do remember uh, being struck by just how uh, human it was, but also how angry it was uh, about th- about things, uh, about how things had fallen apart. Uh, not in a bad way, being angry, but you know, I mean, these are things to be angry about. So it's it definitely is a film that I think has a unique voice uh, with regard to the sort of if you want to call it a war film, uh, it has a unique voice, and I do appreciate the way it, it tries to show journalism and what is the role of journalism and what's the uh, the price of journalism. 
So nice pick. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's something that. Uh, yeah, the, the Vietnam War definitely looms large over this film, and, and rightfully so. And and I think the fact that you mentioned anger as being a real uh, uh, tone in the film, I, I would agree with that. I mean, s- certainly Sam Watterson's portrayal of Sidney Sh- uh, Shanberg is is one of anger, and one one could say maybe his performance is a little over the top, but I think it serves the film well. I, I think it depicts his passion as a reporter, but also just. Um, not only his anger, but just the collective anger that America, I'm sure, was still feeling uh, during the early 80s because the, the Vietnam War was not too far behind them. So just seeing another communist insurgency in Southeast Asia uh, and, and the uh, the wake of destruction and its path, I think, uh, regardless of the country, is, is something that, that uh, conjures nightmares for um for many different uh, countries. so. And I think it's the first, I, mean, I could be wrong, but it's one of the first films where Chris Menges, the cinematographer, got a lot of attention, and he's gone on to have a, gr- a great career. And, uh, he won the Oscar at, um, for this particular film. He won it again for The Mission a couple years later. And uh, it is a, a beautifully filmed movie. And there is that one very stylized shot with the silhouettes and the sunset. But otherwise, you're right. It's a very naturalistic, uh, almost documentary-like uh, approach to the storytelling. Uh, but some very captivating images, very powerful images. So it's a great film from as far as an actual representation of a visual medium. Uh, it, it shows well what you can do with the camera. Yeah, I, I jotted down Chris Menji's name because he's much like Roland Jaffe. I think he's a very talented uh, individual that's been overlooked over the years. Uh, so no, and and in fairness, I think Roland Jaffe certainly has made some decisions in his career that, despite his talent, do not would not would under, help one understand why he maybe went down the road of kind of being obscure. Uh, I think of like the adaptation he did of the Scarlet Letter and stuff like that in the '90s. But he was quite the dynamo, dynamo in the '80s. Yeah, he showed a lot of promise at the time, and, and I would agree. His later films did not measure up to his earlier work. I think his most recent film uh, was uh, "There Be Dragons," which uh, wasn't all that great. So mediocre. I, yeah, which is unfortunate. But uh, his earlier work definitely worth checking out. This uh, "The Killing Fields" and "The Mission." Uh, you know, the mission could be a good criterion release as well. I, I do think the the Blu-ray from Warner Brothers isn't bad. Uh, but going back to the existing Blu-ray for The Killing Fields, uh, granted Warner did put out a fairly nice Digibook edition uh, recently, but it is very spare on the extras. I, so I, one of the other reasons why I felt this would merit a criterion release uh, was that lack of extras. So actually in, overseas, Better editions have been released. There is a commentary that exists with director Roland Jaffe that was not included on the American release. Uh, there's a legacy documentary on the making of the film that was also not included. This is a film that I think could merit um, a nice 4K restoration. I mean, I think the current Blu-ray doesn't look bad, but could use a cleanup. I think the transfer could be better. Uh, the domestic release has the original 2.0 audio, I believe, a, a remix 5.1 soundtrack does exist. I'm always a proponent for including the original mix, of course, but I, I have nothing against a 5.1 remix, and if it exists, it's nice to include it. Uh, 
couple other ideas, some new interviews, I think, with cast and crew uh, would be helpful. Sam Watterson, of course, is still around, so it'd be nice to get his views on the film uh, 30-some years later. And it's a good opportunity to include some uh, documentary uh, features on the actual conflict uh, in Cambodia. So a lot of potential, I think, for a really nice special edition. And uh, that, that shot that you mentioned with the sunset and the silhouette, uh, was the shot on the poster and I, that would make some pretty good artwork as well. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, uh, that would be sort of the iconic image. So if you wanted to take that approach, you know, Criterion does for some of their artwork, they do shots from the film. And I think that one would work very nicely with their established aesthetic. Um, I think that it might be even an interesting extra that could be just a document, a documentary about just Vietnam on film, uh, the different kind of Hollywood films that emerged after the war, you had a wide range. Uh, you had, in a certain sense, even Rambo right, was a response to Vietnam. It was obviously yeah. a, a cartoonish yeah. and over the top, but it was. And so was stuff like Hamburger Hill. Uh, so you have an interesting range of movies that was made. You could maybe do a, a good special feature about that and how does The Killing Fields situate itself within that larger cinematic narrative. Uh, so that's that's uh, got some potential as, as a release. Well, let's go on to uh, your classic pick. Well, this one was actually extraordinarily easy for me to pick. I, I never had to give a second thought. Uh, this is a film that is extraordinarily important for cinema. But it also, I would say, is important for me, too. I remember when I first saw it, it was late at night. I was watching on Turner Classic Movies back when I was in college, and I was on it. 1.30 in the morning and I stayed up to watch it and I had never seen it before and it's uh, fr- the first ever full length animated film. Matt, do you know what is the first full length animated film? <laughs> this is a quiz, huh? It is a quiz because everyone's going to say uh, he's talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? Because that's what everyone says is this full- first full length animated film. But that's incorrect. That would be uh, The Adventures of Prince Achmed. That is the first full-length animated film. Snow White and Seven Dwarfs is the first full-length cartoon. But The Prince, Adventures of Prince Achmed is the first full-length animated film. It is a silent film from Germany. Lothar Reiniger is the director of the film. It's only 67 minutes long in its current form. The original nitrate negative, all that is gone. But they have been able to reconstruct it. Uh, they have the correct color timing for it. It was a process of what was known as silhouette animation. And it's uh, it was an incredibly innovative way of doing animation at the time. So this film is to me important as uh, just a, in terms of its historical place. It's the first feature-length animated film. It also was a particularly interesting step forward artistically for animation in the movies. Before this, it wasn't much of anything, usually shorts. So here you said you could make an actual real captivating uh, uh, story. And it also was a technique that uh, really kind of gave birth to what we call stop-motion animation today. The way the silhouette animation would work is you would have these cardboard uh, cutouts with, uh, with a thin sheet of lead in them. And you could just manipulate them, right? You would just manipulate it one frame at a time like we do for stop-motion animation. And then you would have a sheet behind it of some kind of color. Uh, you could have it be black. You could have it be whatever. And then they would have uh, the animation come up, and they would tint the film. So it was a, a very innovative style. 
And if you watch it now, it is just a treasure of a film to see. It is just delightful. Uh, the story is based on parts of the 1001 Nights, the Arabian Nights, as we would call it mm-hmm. in English, uh, particularly the story of Prince Ahmed and the fairy Parabanu. And uh, it also takes elements of Aladdin and different little components of different areas of the stories there uh, and creates this delightful film. It just it holds up so extraordinarily well. Here we are nearly 100 years from it, right? 90 years after it was made. And this thing, I'd rather show it to a kid than the stuff that's coming from Pixar or DreamWorks or whatever. It is just delightful. I guarantee if you show a kid this movie, they will be enchanted by it. It will really captivate them. And so it's a great way to maybe even introduce young audiences to silent cinema uh, to realize that, you know, it's not just about loud noises. It's about uh, just beautiful compositions. It's about interesting characters and storytelling. And you could do this in all sorts of wonderful ways. So I think it could be just a really formative film for people to see. Uh, It doesn't have any Blu-ray release that I'm aware of, certainly not in the States. And so it'd be nice to see it get one. But what I would say in the meantime, uh, people could, if they just go to YouTube and just type in The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, you can at least play clips of it. And I would recommend anybody who's listening to actually go and do that because you will see just truly enchanting, magical moments. Uh, It is just an extraordinary experience to watch this movie. I'm thinking particularly of the scene in which uh, the the hero, Prince Ahmed, goes to the land of Wakwak. And he encounters this whole new land, this whole new region, uh, these new uh, spirits, and it's just delightful. Uh, When Aladdin finally emerges towards the end of it, you get to see the genie, and the animation work on the genie is really incredible. So it's just a delightful adventure tale. It is fantastic. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. I think adults would be enchanted with it as well. So highly recommend it. It's one of the best films I think ever made. And uh, it's probably 67 of the most delightful minutes you can ever spend watching a film. Well, that's a unique pick. Uh, I, I have not seen that myself, and it sounds uh, it sounds like something worthy of, of Criterion. And, and Criterion has been paying more attention to animation recently, uh, Watership Down and uh, Fantastic Planet, I think, being their most recent animated release. So, yeah. yeah. I could see them uh, paying some attention to this. The uh, the shorter runtime um, might be an issue, but you know we have Night and Fog on its own uh, full MSRP Blu-ray at this point, so that probably won't hold them back. Uh, but yeah, it, it sounds like it would be a very interesting and important release. Uh, what kind of supplemental material would you think would be nice for this? Well, there's a nice uh, documentary already in, in existence about the director, Lotta Reiniger. She was, of course, I mean, there's another reason why it's an important film. She was one of the first major cinematic artists that was a woman. And so it's also just if you're into the female empowerment thing, it's worth, uh, I think, highlighting her particular work, especially since it's more or less forgotten about uh, at this point in time. Uh, but she uh, had a heavy influence on future uh, animators. She actually came up with the predecessor for the multiplane camera. So I think you could do a great documentary about her. Uh, there is one already out there uh, from Germany, uh, Lothar Reiniger, homage to the inventor of silhouette film. And it's about an hour long. So I think if you could get the rights to that, you could include that in there. It would be a very worthwhile addition. But then I think you could also do a, a documentary just about the history of animation. Uh, how did it develop? 
what was its progress in cinema? How did it become something that was utilized in storytelling? Uh, and Reidegger also has a number of short films that she did. So you could incorporate some of those in there as well. She did what would be, I guess, kind of the equivalent of uh, ads. They had little short ads that she would do for different uh, products. And you could have some of those in there. So I think there's a lot of potential uh, for just exploring the role of animation, uh, what its role it was in the silent era, how it's grown. Uh, and then you could trace out different uh, elements of this particular film and how it appears in other works later on. The Disney's The Sword and the Stone, uh, the way it depicts the battle between the witch and the wizard is very similar to the battle between the witch and the sorcerer in this particular uh, film. Uh, you could also maybe just make a reference to how the film Aladdin has a couple of elements that it takes from it. There's a little cameo by a character named Prince Ahmed in Aladdin. So you could maybe even point out some of those things of how it had a particular impact here. So highly recommend it. I think it'd be a great movie. Uh, and it's certainly one of those milestones in, in cinema that deserves attention. So Very cool. So I guess, Matt, moving over to our uh, contemporary picks, uh, what uh, did you come up with for yours? Well, it's uh, another... Oh, wait, I didn't, you know, I just oh. realized I forgot to mention what I would want for the uh, cover art. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Prince of Ahmed. So I have an idea that what you could do is, and it, it kind of be neat because you, you, may, you may remember back in the day, Criterion had that, uh, when they did their spines, they had that little single line that would run across. Mm-hmm. And so I thought what you could do is you could have that uh, on the cover art. You could have that at the very top like they used to in the Criterion Collection. And you could sort of drop down from there into the silhouettes of the different images of the, of the film. Uh, you could have sort of a collage of the different worlds that Ahmed visits as he goes along. And it could all stem from that, a little nice homage to back when Criterion used to have that particular model of their, of their artwork. Uh, of having that line, you could just kind of drop it down from the t- from the top of the frame. So that was my thought of what uh, artwork could look like. Now uh, that animation style was that. Um, uh, now you said it was more of a stop motion style. Uh, were they? Well, it was it was captured. I mean, it does not look like stop motion when you watch it. Sure, it it, it looks. I mean, it's it's just it's a very fluid look, but it's all in silhouette. So you have mm-hmm. these black figures. And then you have a colored background behind it. So maybe it's blue, maybe it's uh, it's green, maybe it's uh, orange. So you have a different colored black background in these black figurines uh, uh, in the front for us. And what is also neat is you could see uh, they had an understanding of depth uh, as how things you know would pass in front of one another. So you can understand even with the silhouettes, something is passing in front of something else. It's a very intricate design, uh, very just fascinating to watch. Well, again, yeah, sounds like a great pick. I think uh, something that should at least be put on Filmstruck, hopefully. Yeah, I would hope so. So, all right, sorry about that. Oh, that's uh, right. So going back to, to, the, to the contemporary picks, uh, what did you come up with for yours? Breaking up my flow here. No. <laughs> uh, I'm just a jerk. <laughs> All right, well, my contemporary uh, pick is uh, definitely something more contemporary. Uh, I don't think you could argue that. So my pick is the uh, 1999 Steven Soderbergh film, The Limey. So this... I'm not surprised. <laughs> I know you love that movie. Yeah, it's uh, as I said at the beginning, there are some personal indulgences here, so you have to bear with me. Uh, 
had some honorable mentions in this category as well, but I had to go with the Limey. I felt like it would be a good good fit for the Criterion Collection. They've certainly had precedent uh, releasing Steven Soderbergh's films with uh, Traffic and Shea and uh, King of the Hill and uh, Schizopolis and quite a few of his films actually are in the, in the Criterion Collection now, now that I uh, think about it. Yeah, they like them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but this is a film that has not been released on Blu-ray. Uh, I, I believe you can get it digitally in HD, but uh, has not seen a domestic Blu-ray release. Or I, I could be wrong. I don't think it's even been released internationally on Blue, uh, but I, I might be wrong on that, at, at least not in a, a region-free form. Uh, so an important film, I, I think, for Steven Soderbergh. Uh, you could argue that it's one of his lesser films, but I... I would argue the opposite. I think it's one of his best films. Uh, very well shot by Ed Lockman, who uh, more recently got a lot of attention for his work on uh, Carol. So great cast here. Terrence Stamp, of course, is the star as Wilson, uh, kind of a washed-up British criminal who heads over to L.A. to find out what happened to his daughter, who had recently died Uh just a great callback cast in the 1960s and 70s. You have uh, Peter Fonda, of course, as the villain, uh, Terry Valentine, Leslie Ann Warren's in the film, uh, Barry Newman, uh, Luis Guzman, of course, not a 60s or 70s star, but he's always welcome, uh, and he plays kind of an interesting sidekick to Terrence Stamp's character. So again, it's a story of revenge, and uh, Wilson's daughter, was the significant other of Terry Valentine when she died. And Terrence Stamp basically assumes that Peter Fonda uh, killed her or she died by some uh, nefarious means. So it, it it's really an interesting fish-out-of-water tale. Here's a hardened British criminal that's thrown into the... the uh, sun-drenched concrete of uh, kind of that desolate uh, uh, industrial part of L.A., and he's thrust in this world of of drugs and uh, and washed-up rock and roll stars or rock and roll record executives, I should say. Uh, and and why do I think this film's important? Well, I I think stylistically it's a benchmark for Soderbergh. You know, this is. Right after, um, I want to say this is right after Out of Sight. I think that's right. Yeah, so he had this huge film with uh, Jennifer Lopez and uh, George Clooney, and he decided to kind of step back and make a smaller film again, which which I respect. Uh, but just from a stylistic standpoint, he was trying a lot of new things here. The editing is very unique. Uh, lots of flashbacks, uh, very nonlinear uh, elliptical sort of film, which, as you know, Nate is is something that I, I like in my films, uh, and it's a very interesting uh, depictions of conversations in this film that stand out. So, uh, one example is Wilson's character, uh, Terrence Stamp's character, talking with Leslie Ann Warren. They have a conversation. It takes place between several different locations, and it's one continuous conversation. But we're cutting between different locations and. And somehow it feels very organic and it works and it basically depicts a memory in a way. So you can think back on a conversation and not necessarily remember where certain things were discussed, 
during the course of an evening or the course of a day, but you know they were discussed. So it's a, a cinematic representation of memory in many ways, and that's a theme throughout the film. Uh, but it's also an important film, I think, for Peter Fonda in many ways. To me, this film is to Peter Fonda what Unforgiven is to Clint Eastwood. You know, this is depicting Peter Fonda as kind of the washed-up sort of 60s and 70s uh, star in the in the context of the film. He's a record executive in the context of uh, movie history, of course. Uh, we we see him as really the icon of, of uh, cinema from that era. So uh, Easy Rider, which of course is in the Criterion Collection, but also great, you know, classic road movies, um, Ride with the Devil and um, uh, Dirty Mary, uh, Crazy uh, Crazy Larry, if I'm getting that right. <laughs> but it, it's an, he had unique titles in his movies. <laughs> it's an homage to to his his films and to road movies in general. Of course, with Barry Newman being there with Vanishing Point. And this film was written by Lem Dobbs, who is a great admirer of that era and and those films. But also, he's someone that that I believe grew up in England uh, for at least part of his his childhood. So he's very versed in kind of the Cockney rhyming sort of slang that uh, Terrence Stamp uses throughout the film. Uh, so great film. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Uh, I think it would be worthy of a Criterion release. I just would like to see it on Blu-ray in any form, but I think it would be a good fit for Criterion. It would be up their alley. So, I mean, I think it, it has a real legitimate reason to be in there. Um, I haven't seen I saw it one time probably about 15 years ago at your recommendation, and I did like it. I, I don't know that I was necessarily as blown away as you have been, Matt, but I'm also not as big of a Soderbergh fan as you are, so I, I recognize there might be just a natural... Uh, aversion or, or at least a lack of um, commitment on my part to his his filmography but i do remember its editing was very innovative very interesting uh, and you made reference to that one particular scene which i thought was a very nicely done and as you said it felt organic it didn't feel gimmicky because there was at that late 90s time it just editing was so damned self-aware yeah and i i, I think that's partly tarantino's influence but it, it was a, a film that I thought really had some interesting editing. And I think it is a nice uh, counterpoint to Out of Sight. Out of Sight is actually one of the Soderbergh films that I really do admire, and I, I love its editing as well. And this is a nice counterpoint because they're, they're similar genres, but Out of Sight's with an artistic and independent sensibility, but still very big budget, big uh, you know, big sort of uh, blockbuster kind of idea. And this one, it takes the same genre, but goes a little bit more uh, pulpy and a little bit more off the beaten path. And so I do uh, enjoy the fact that there's a nice juxtaposition between the two, uh, two, uh, two films. So it would be interesting to see it again and to see a, worth, a worthwhile release of it. Is the DVD even anamorphic? It is, yeah. Artisan put it out, and it, it's a decent release. I mean, it actually has some good features on it. Uh I want to say the. I don't think the menu is anamorphic. I, I know it's strange for me to mention that, but I always remember that as being kind of odd that the menu was in four by three, but the the film itself is in anamorphic. So, well, so what uh, what ideas do you have for uh, special features? Well, definitely what would want to port over everything that's on the DVD. There's some decent features on there already. The best, of course, by far, being the commentary track with Steven Soderbergh and Lem Dobbs. 
which is my pick for the greatest commentary of all time. I mean, at least my personal favorite. It's oh, Matt, I think you are forgetting about <laughs> the work of William Friedkin on the French Connection. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> you, you mean the explaining? You mean the right audio description track of the a film? Picture <laughs> of a man shooting another man. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Billy. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, it, it goes beyond that. It, this is an outstanding commentary. I mean, if if you uh, if you just listen to this commentary with the film and, and don't bother watching the film, or even yeah, even just listen to this commentary on its own, I think you'll still be entertained. But of course, with the context of the film, it's much better. Uh, it, it is an amazing track. They spend the great majority of the running time defending each other's decisions and defending each other's work and arguing openly uh lem Dobbs is actually quite bitter in terms of how his script was changed uh by soderbergh and uh some of the um let's just say he's not entirely satisfied with the end point of the film and did they record it together they did yes okay yeah it's recorded together and they're very critical of each other. It's just a great track, but they, they clearly have, res- I want to, I want to listen to it right now. <laughs> they clearly have respect for each other. Uh, but it's hilarious. It's quite honest. And I think the two of them conduct themselves pretty well, considering the circumstances, uh, Steven Soderbergh in particular, I think gets pelted quite a bit more than Lem Dobbs, but he, uh, he takes it like a gentleman. And uh, there's just uh, the humor. I have to go back to that, too. There's just some really great choice lines in this commentary. So uh, just an outstanding track. Can't can't say enough about it. Also, there's some creative editing actually in the commentary that pays homage to the film itself. So uh, if you remember in the film, there are some bits that introduce certain characters that almost play out as like a trailer for that character in terms of what you're going to see from this character for the, the rest of the film. Uh, Peter Fonda's introduction in particular comes to mind. Uh, so the commentary does that as well in the beginning. There's almost like a little trailer for the commentary where you're, you're hearing little bits and pieces of some of the choice comments that come up later on. So it's a very fun track and uh, very irreverent, but uh, again, there it's really two men that love cinema that are very passionate about 1960s and 70s cinema in particular and the icons they're seeing on screen in their own film uh, in a very new modern context and it's it's a cinema history lesson uh, but it's just a great examination of uh, the rift between screenwriter and director and all the uh, all the baggage that comes with that so definitely that has to make it uh over to the criterion release some other ideas i had uh some new interviews i'm always a fan of of a good interview uh with with cast and crew Uh, i do think uh something with ed lockman would be uh definitely welcome and of course the natural inclusion here would be the 1967 film by ken loach poor cow which is ken loach's debut film so clips from poor cow were used in the limey as flashbacks depicting Terrence Stamp as a younger man. And it was a neat effect when they did that. You, yeah. you see him really as a younger man, and it is a, a neat way of doing it. Yeah, and 
Ken Loach, of course, is already represented in the Criterion Collection with Kess, and I, I think this would be kind of a no-brainer extra, and it would really make this release very special and, and very appealing. All right. And, of course, the very poster cool. art uh, is its a classic poster. The cover should have the poster. Don't mess with it. You like the poster art for the the uh, home video release, don't you? I, I'm a fan of the original poster art. Yeah, I, I, I think the Killing Fields could be one that could die or benefit from original art. But the Limey's poster is so good, you just you have to go with it. Mm-hmm. So, well, I know you have the poster in your basement. Yes, so yes, I do. I, uh, I, I, I know you're a fan of it. <laughs> well, I had a hard time picking out my contemporary pick. I. Um, yeah, I, I like you. I had a, first of all the question of what's contemporary versus classic. Yeah, uh, how far back can you go and still call something contemporary? And there's a lot of films that I just love that are really interesting films and really good films. I thought, well, I'd love to champion it here. Um, but I and I even had a crazy idea of how to do a box set uh, that maybe could be just a way of trying to cheat a little bit and get a few <laughs> different films all in. Uh, but ultimately, I, I came back to that word important. Uh, a collection of important films and so I, I had to settle on what was the film that I thought is contemporary and truly truly an important film and that gets me to The Passion of the Christ so my pick for a contemporary film to be included in the Criterion Collection would be The Passion of the Christ I don't think I need to introduce the film uh, It's I, I would argue this is Matt probably the most controversial film I remember being released. There's been plenty of controversies, but I haven't seen anything like this. Yeah. And uh, the only other film that might ra- rival it for controversy is The Last Temptation of Christ. I was I was just going to say that, actually, yeah. And, of course, The Last Temptation is in the Criterion Collection. It's got a very nice release. Um, you know, between the two films, I think The Passion is the better of the two. Uh, and it's... You know, it's films about the life of Christ have been around uh, since the silent era. It's nothing new. But this one definitely takes a new approach. I, to my knowledge, it's still the only R-rated movie based on the Bible. Uh, certainly the only R-rated one I know of from the, the Gospels. And it definitely earns its R rating for its violence. Uh, it, it's a film to me, though, that's extraordinarily powerful. Uh, I saw it uh, with you, actually. We went and saw it on its opening day. Yep. And it is a film that captivates me. I, it captivates me not just as a Catholic, uh, but also it captivates me as a cinephile. This is, if we want to talk about independent cinema, this to me is the ultimate expression of independent cinema. Mel Gibson is probably bipolar and a crazy human being. <laughs> and obviously his behavior subsequent to this release uh, is uh, it continues the controversy, I guess. Right. And I'm sure that's probably why this title would never be entertained by the people at Criterion Collection. But I do think nonetheless, uh, he is a brilliant mind cinematically. Uh, and I think his work as a director has been remarkable. He hasn't had a ton of it, but it's all been remarkable what he has done. And I, I think that in this particular film, he was totally immersed. If you want to talk about the auteur theory of film, this idea that the director is the one that makes it, here is maybe one of the two or three greatest examples of, of that theory, uh, if you want to try to cite it as being correct. Uh, he pretty much willed this thing into existence. Uh, against all odds, broke all the conventions, all the rules, and it's a huge 
huge success, right? I mean, it yeah. was uh, it's the most I think highest grossing R rated film of all time. Uh, it's you got just a incredible uh, legacy, I guess you'd say. I mean, it's still shown uh, around uh, different groups uh, still watch it mostly, I'm sure, with a religious context. But I mean, I think of the fact that this movie was made by his with his own money, twenty five million dollars. He put twenty five million dollars of his own money into making this film. And it looks like a hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, it, it just it is an astonishing accomplishment of costume design. Uh, the cinematography is basically like watching a cinematic Caravaggio. Uh, it has an incredible score, a score that has clearly has some inspirations from The Last Temptation, uh, but is just a powerful score. And then you have incredible performances. Whether it's Caviezel as Jesus, uh, you have Maya Morgenstern playing the the Virgin Mary, uh, you have just this incredible cast of people that we most of them not known to Americans, uh, most of them actors from Romania or somewhere like that, and uh, made it here into this particular film and just nailed it. I mean, this is to me a film that really transports you into the world it's creating, and it is a film that. I say is important. I think we still see, in many ways, the impact of this film on cinema 12 years later. Uh, I mean, it's... Hollywood is still trying to make somehow... They realize that we can make money on these religious movies. And they're not making money on them because they're doing it the wrong way. But Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely showed that there is a market there. And I think it showed that... Basically, if if you're a man or a woman who's convicted about your work... Uh, it will resonate. It will. It'll shock people. It will inspire people. It will disturb people. It will. Uh, it'll r- get people riled up. It'll get them talking about cinema. So this, to me, I think it's the best film made, feature film made so far uh, in the 20th century, 21st century, and I think it is uh, just a phenomenal work of art, and I, I think a truly important film from any way you try to slice it. Well, say what you will about Mel Gibson, the man, uh, but Mel Gibson, the artist, I, I have great respect for. I mean, I I agree with you uh, on many things you said in terms of this film. I I, I think it's a great pick. I mean, it, it, when I saw it in the theater with you, uh, the power of it is is extraordinary, and and the film is grounded in many ways yet it is very stylized but not in a way that calls attention to itself i think uh, caravaggio was certainly a an inspiration for the visual style of this film but caleb deschanel shot it looks outstanding um of course the uh the use of the original aramaic and the original uh period languages and latin for the romans uh only adds to the authenticity of the film but I feel like people don't really talk about this film very much anymore. You know, it, it was a, a very controversial film at the time, uh, very much in the center of, of popular culture. And it did very well uh, at the box office. And I think it's still one of the highest grossing, even independent films of all time. And it is kind of strange to think of this as an independent film because it feels like a big studio film, but it wasn't. You know, and and I think it's important to to really highlight the fact that okay, this was a passion project. Uh, pardon the pun; <laughs> that was not intentional <laughs> uh, uh, for Mel Gibson. And and as you said, it really does show 
Uh, one thing always struck me about this film too, I mean, say what you will about its depiction of violence, which is really unflinching and some could say over the top, but I, I, I think it's important that it's depicted the way it was depicted. Uh, but the depiction of, of Satan in this film, I think is, yeah, is brilliant. brilliant and extraordinary and, uh, something that always stood out to me as being, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to say accurate, but it just, it, it, it was unsettling in such a way that felt like, okay, this, you know, Satan should be kind of a seductive character, right? I mean, this, it's not a devil with, with, uh, horns and a pitchfork, you know, you have this kind of androgynous sort of, um, uh, seductive sort of character that, uh, I've never seen, you know, the devil depicted in that way on, on screen. And, and it just, it felt like, okay, this is probably what it would be like. I mean, for, for uh, Christ to be experiencing this moment in the garden, this moment of temptation, you know, it, it's, it really kind of defied convention in terms of um, that depiction. But also to have just a level of detail in the film. So the the fact that that, I haven't seen the film for a few years, I have to confess, but... Uh, but think about it, you haven't seen it for a few years, and you're remembering it extraordinarily well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you the know, images are there, they're, it's like you just watched it a little bit ago. Uh, just that, uh, I want to say it's a maggot that comes out of uh, Satan's nose, or I, I just remember that as being uh, uh, just a detail that was completely repulsive yet it was such a small little element right and there are bits like that throughout the film and it's it's depiction of of christ as a human being as well and not just god i i think was was striking too just some of the flashbacks and some of the interaction between him and his mother and and him as a carpenter right just working on a project and it's just not not something we see Christ depicted. Uh, we don't see him depicted in that way. We see him uh, again as this in the more stereotypical uh, fashion. So, yeah, it's a great pick. Uh, the The existing Blu-ray, uh, I think they came out with a, a special edition or an ultimate edition recently. Is that right? Uh, I don't know um, where it stands on Blu-ray. I know that I think there was one they came out with. There's a definitive edition DVD, and I think they released on Blu-ray at the same time mm-hmm. uh, as well. So it's probably about seven, eight years old. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think that you could take a lot. So I mean, it does have a, a decent release. So I mean, I, I will say that it, it it does have a decent release. But I think what you could do is you could take the features. There's some really good uh, commentaries on that. There's a theologian's commentary, and there's uh, 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 just a filmmaker's commentary. Uh, so there's some interesting stuff that's being done on that. Uh, but there's also a couple of good you know, documentaries about the making of it, how did they, what uh, inspirations they find from classical art. So you could take those, uh, I think, and transport them over. But then it actually would be, to me, really interesting to do uh, a documentary about the controversy, about how was it responded to and you could really get into some juicy things there during the production I mean, even before it was released 
while they were shooting it, there was a, a huge controversy that started to emerge. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be fascinating just to kind of get a really detailed and balanced uh, portrayal of it. You know, both the pros and the cons, right? Have have people from both positions be a part of this. Have filmmakers weigh in on it. I remember Ridley Scott saying on an interview that he thought it was a brilliant film. And I think Scorsese even made some reference to it uh, about just the, the, the artistic vision and mind of, of Mel Gibson. So I, I think that you could get some really great discussion out of a commentary or a documentary about that. And then I think there would be uh, actually just an interesting documentary. I guess if you like convers- uh, you know, the interviews, I like documentaries. Uh, you could do a documentary about just the depiction of Christ on film, going all the way back to the, the early silent films. Sure all the way through the big, huge, big-budget things like The Greatest Story Ever Told or Ben-Hur uh, to now, uh, more recently, you could do this, you know, some of the more, shall we say, uh, evangelical films, uh, you know, the, uh, the ones that maybe be shown in foreign missions or something. So I think you could have just a fascinating depiction of that. And uh, how does this film fit into that larger picture? What is its contribution uh, and how does it, you know, because this is a, a, a obviously a story, a, a particular uh, figure that is uh, prominent in a lot of different works. So cinematically, how has Christ been portrayed and how does this film fall, fall into that particular uh, narrative? So that would be, I think, the stuff you could do for a commentary. I was thinking of, you know, what you could do for the cover art. I, I mean, it's maybe a little obvious, but... You could have a, a close-up of Christ uh, dead on the cross or hanging his head low on the cross to be just basically a counterpoint to the cover art for The Last Temptation of Christ. You could have, because that has the, the Willem Dafoe, who played Jesus in that movie, with his head bowed down on the cross. And you could just do the same thing with Jim Caviezel. And my thought was you could maybe inverse it so that he's facing the opposite direction because these two films were very controversial uh, and for different reasons, right? Uh, it was It's actually kind of funny to think of it, but you had conservatives defending the passion and then uh, liberals attacking it. And then the, the last temptation, when that came out in 88, it was the inverse, yeah. right? So it's, it struck me as, you know, these are in some ways two sides of the same coin. Uh, so I think uh, that would be kind of a neat little subtle thing they could do with the cover art. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, we'll see if we ever actually get any kind of uh, response from anybody on, on these particular suggestions. Sure. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, uh, we do have now the new streaming service Filmstruck, which has uh, made its way live this past month of November. And uh, I've, I, I got a subscription to it, Matt. I believe you do as well. Yep. Do you have any thoughts uh, based on your initial experience with it? Well, I think there's a lot to love here for sure, and I think there's definitely room for improvement, but I, I'm really, really, really enjoying the service so far. I mean, clearly this is something, I think, as you said in the, the opening, uh, made for film lovers by film lovers, so uh, a joint effort between TCM and the Criterion Collection, and it really shows. I mean... I always felt like Criterion being on Hulu was just kind of an odd marriage. I never felt like Hulu quite knew what to do with the Criterion titles. They were always always very poorly organized and kind of almost shoved into the background of Hulu. I mean, Hulu's, in, in my mind, very much about current network TV, and that's kind of their bread and butter. So the fact that Criterion... It was an odd... 
odd connection. Yeah, the fact that Criterion was on there at all, I, I always thought was strange. So uh, it's a very welcome shift to a more dedicated service. And uh, I've been using it primarily on the iPad, the iOS app, and using AirPlay to my Apple TV. Uh, I believe there is an Apple TV app only on the fourth generation Apple TV, which coming out in December. Okay, so it's not out yet. Okay, um, I've got the third generation, so I, I can still use uh, through AirPlay and and kind of beam over what I want to watch. And I do think the initial um, iPad app, the AirPlay feature, wasn't working, but there is an update now and it does work just fine. So uh, I've been enjoying that. And the way the uh, the site is organized, so I, I've looked at it on Safari and on the iPad, and the browser experience I think is is fine. Uh, probably not quite as elegant, I guess, as the the iPad app, I would say. Uh, and of course, you've got kind of two breakdowns. You've got the FilmStruck, the basic FilmStruck service that does include some Criterion titles, uh, and then of course Criterion Channel, which. Uh, expands on those greatly so the big draw here is curated content which uh, is really appreciated so it seems like every day there's kind of a new feature that pops up i think one of the most recent ones that popped up was auteurs in space on the criterion channel which features tarkovsky solaris and, and a few other uh, directors and their kind of depiction of we won't hold it against it for including solaris but yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> We'll get back to Tarkovsky. I, I, I'm much to your chagrin. I'm coming around on Tarkovsky. Uh, oh God! If you make me watch Solaris for this podcast, <laughs> I, I won't do that to you because I know how you feel about it. I, I, I do value oh, our friendship. You feel the same way. Every everybody feels the same way. They just lie and say they like it. <laughs> it's well, well. Let's not uh, get too far off, of course, here, but. Uh, Really, a lot to love so far, and and kind of the features that they're uh, they're pushing forward are, are appreciated. So there's original content on there too. So uh, a section called "Observations on Film Art" with David Boardwell. Look like they're kind of going for maybe some kind of little mini cinema or film lectures. Essentially, I think there's one on foreign foreign correspondent right now on on its music. And it looks like they're bringing in some celebrities as well, uh, with Bill Hader as being the first one to talk about a few of their favorite films and their collect- that are uh, in the Criterion Collection. So, mm-hmm. um, so far, so good. Uh, what are your thoughts, yeah. Nate? I like it. I think it's got, as you said, there's some room for improvement. It's brand new, right? Yeah. And they're going to figure things out, particularly the original content. That's where I see real room for improvement. Obviously, the films are, are it's great to see. I like that there's some really good out-of-print films. For example, I was watching Mona Lisa, which is from the Criterion. It's on the Criterion uh, channel. And it's not uh, available in print anymore. And it's a wonderful movie. And I also like that there's some films on there that aren't in the collection yet, but may very well be in the collection someday. For example, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but the Russian version of War and Peace, you know, the seven-and-a-half-hour uh, version of it, this epic film that was a $100 million budget in 1967 you know so gosh what would that be today 500 million dollars yeah. or something to make uh, you know it's just it's, it's cool because i oh my gosh i've always wanted to see that i wanted to see it in its original format and i don't think there's been any particular good home video release of it 
and I, I don't know of any cinema that's planning to show it anytime soon. So I thought, oh, that'll be great. I'll, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching that. I haven't sat down with it yet. I uh, I also have experimented with the different ways in which to look at it on my iPhone, my iPad. Uh, I did some airplay on Apple TV as well, and it works. It, the Safari, you're right, it's not maybe as smooth. It's fine, but I think they're they're rightly putting more of their interest in the app. Yeah, because most people are going to probably use the app to to watch things on it. So it's it's worth it for that. I guess I would like to see, and maybe it'll come with time, but just. I mean, who cares what Bill Hader thinks about movies? <laughs> I mean, it's no offense, but I, take offense, Bill. I don't care what you have to say. Um, so it's uh, it's one of those things where I think you could get better people on there, and maybe that'll just come with time. Uh, but I think that you do have some some interesting possibilities with that, uh, with those short films, talking about different titles that are in there, and I like that they are uh, they have a pretty active Twitter feed. So just in terms of getting discussions going uh, among people that are on Filmstruck about, for example, they had one uh, with in November, right, November, uh, about film noir, and just talk about is it a genre or is it a, uh, a style? And what's neo-noir versus film noir? And so I, I thought it was kind of interesting that they're facilitating some conversation among film buffs such as ourselves uh, to hopefully get people engaged and thinking and a little more philosophical a little more theoretical in their appreciation of film so i think it's a great service i i'm thrilled with it i'm glad i i, I went in on the subscription for it and i think it's um i think it's got a lot of, of a lot of potential yeah i feel like it's something that i i definitely had to support you know and a lot to enjoy I mean, my one my one concern. I want to make sure the physical media still continues to exist. I, I love physical media. I plan to keep supporting physical media as long as I can, and so you well, know, this is a great service to have. But there's certain things I'm going to want to physically have a copy of too. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I did read an interview recently with Peter Becker of Criterion talking about Filmstruck, and he was very clear saying that they're still planning on releasing Blu-rays for as long as people continue to buy them essentially. So uh, I I don't think that's going away, but I I see this as just a great way to sample a lot of films. So instead of having to blind buy a bunch of things uh, at every Barnes and Noble sale, you have the chance to see it uh, high quality streaming. And if it's something you want in the collection, uh, then you pick it up. So it's, it's great. But also to see those titles pop up that, are potentially coming to Criterion later is exciting. Uh, back to Tarkovsky, uh, there's a handful of Tarkovsky films on the service in just superb HD masters uh, that are branded Criterion, so that heavily suggests that Criterion is going to be coming out with a Tarkovsky collection in the near future, which uh, I think a lot of people would find very welcome. Oh yeah, no. It's it's kind of is neat to have a sense of oh, some ideas of what could be coming down the pipeline. Yep. So I do appreciate that, and yeah, I mean, I think that as a service, this is what uh, probably the best film streaming service that has emerged as so far. Yeah, I, I would agree for sure. I mean, Amazon and Netflix, of course, are still kind of the two titans out there. Hulu's less film or movie oriented. But Amazon and Netflix seem to be very interested in their own original programming and pushing that versus 
having a lot of uh, uh, movies outside of that. So I, I could see this as really becoming the, you know, the powerhouse in terms of um, uh, the streaming service for film lovers. I think it will be. I, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe someone will try to compete with it. But uh, when you got the Criterion locked into it, that's got a built-in fan base. And, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm not worried about Criterion going out of physical media anytime soon. Um, maybe, probably, realistically, everything will eventually go out of it. But uh, for the meanwhile, I think the, the Criterion fans are the ones that are going to keep buying physical copies as long as they possibly can. So... It's it's a it's a fun service. I'm I'm excited to see where they go with it. Well, thanks for listening for tonight. We are going to be discussing Michael Haneke's Code Unknown and our next episode, which will be premiering on the first Friday in January. Thank you very much, and have a great night. And Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas.